Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Need Some Introduction. In today's conversation, this is actually an older conversation from last summer that I had with Ian, where we were discussing samples from music of 1971, piggybacking on that Apple Plus documentary, 1971, the year that music changed everything. And after just talking recently about the important year of 1991 and all the music that came out of there, I decided to resuscitate this conversation and publish it. A lot of really interesting samples here and just a general discussion of how samples allow artists to borrow from each other, pay homage to each other, like covers that we've discussed previously. Also another way to evolve music. In the background, you're actually hearing Woman to Woman by Joe Cocker from 1971. And you probably recognize a sample from Tupac's California Love. Make sure you subscribe so you know when these episodes become available. Son and I will be discussing the new Apple Plus, once again on Apple Plus TV series, The After Party, a very funny first few episodes, three episodes out now, dropped all at the same time. And I was kind of on the fence on that first one, I have to tell you. So if you've only seen the first so far, or if you are dipping in, hang in there because I thought the second and third episodes were even better. The third was really, truly hilarious. So I'm really on board with this now, with this show. Another comedy mystery in the vein, somewhat, I guess, of Only Murders in the Building, another show that we've covered here as well. But all that is coming, so make sure you subscribe. Reach out to us, need some introduction at gmail.com. We'd love to hear your feedback and enjoy the conversation. Today, again, Ian and I, and we are once again going to be discussing music from 1971 based around the documentary 1971, the year that changed, the year that music changed everything. Believe it or not, it did, apparently. We're going to be jumping into some of these artists that we're discussing, and we may just go here and there as we touch on these different artists to take it as a side note. I'd like to maybe do slightly deeper dives into some of their discographies or um, just some of their history as well. But once again, if you haven't seen that documentary, definitely recommend it. Very interesting. But what we're going to do today is we are going to be looking at samples. So songs that sampled music from 1971, just as an excuse, there's so much sampling in culture nowadays, it's pretty easy to find these examples. We're going to focus just on 1971, but just to talk about how, and, and we did some of this when we talked about covers as well, but just how these musical memes recirculate in culture. And we'll talk about 1971. And hey, in the future, we'll probably be talking about other years and other genres. I was just going to also add, it was interesting doing some research and get, getting the playlist together because it really does dovetail nicely into the sampling to me is an extension of a cover song. You're barring and using a reference, whereas covers, it's you have your kind of original reinterpretation, even if it's faithfully done. Samples is a way to add that kind of callback or homage to previous works and recontextualize it. And a lot of them can be very different in the new setting where the sample um, is put. So it's really interesting. And another thing that kind of stuck out to me was there are a lot of these songs that were later sampled that were also later covered. And then some of the cover versions of these songs 
were sampled by different artists. Exactly. Uh, it's just another just great example of the kind of mimetic nature of culture and just how we transmit information to each other through entertainment and art. So if you want to kick it off, that would be, that'd be great. Sure. I'll kick it off. And, uh, and just to follow up on what you were saying also, I think that's very interesting to compare covers and samples. Often cases you use them the same way. So oftentimes you're paying homage to that other artist to say, they're an influence on me. This is a song I loved, whether you're covering it or whether you're sampling it. But sometimes in the same similar way, sometimes will someone will take a song and cover it in a very different style to make you appreciate the lyrics or for ironic purposes to make the song an ironic juxtaposition. And like you were saying, you do the same thing with samples, right? So many times I know like when my nephews or something will get excited about a sample and they'll be like, did you know that song was? And I'm like, yes, I did. I know the original song. I actually didn't know this song that you're playing for me, but I know the original one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And actually, I think I mentioned this maybe on the intro and the Nilsson one, but for years now, I've been doing beat-based music, electronic, uh, hip-hop type stuff. So sampling is a core yeah. thing in that. And I was always a real it's like you're in the club or you got some inside info when you hear a song that's sampling from source material that you already know and everyone's like oh this is the greatest song ever and then you could say want to hear the original exactly. <laughs> it'll freak them out a, a bit and uh, the other thing they're now reference they're now reference libraries you know with the internet being as ubiquitous as it is and one of these that we were talking about just beforehand was whosampled.com, which right. I leaned on in this because it's just a great searchable database. And it's interesting because in sampling culture, you really don't want to divulge your sources. You want to, that's why crate digging is a thing. And you have right. people pulling the most obscure records, library style recordings, just weird stuff and not trying to be too obvious. And there's a little kind of cloak and dagger aspect to it. So it's interesting to see how that kind of has changed that viewpoint right. in, in a way. For me, though, when I first started, when I first discovered whosample.com, pretty much when it came out a number of years ago, I was using it as a reference to make sure stuff that I was sampling hadn't been sampled or nobody had recognized the sample enough to catalog it. Right. It's expanded to the point now where almost anything I think will get captured if you get it up on a streaming service or something like that, someone will put your entry into who sampled. But it's just that's that was interesting to me too, just the evolution of that. And you even have TikTok channels and even YouTube channels now of people that are hip hop producers and stuff that are breaking down classic samples, right. reintroducing the source material to, like you said, like your nephews a younger generation of, of music fans. Let's get into it. By the way, I excluded, this is my own rule, so you, you don't have to comply with these, but I did exclude Funky Drummer by James Brown and also When the Levee Breaks by Led Zeppelin. This is just for people out there who don't know this. The drum sample from When the Levee Breaks by Led Zeppelin and the drum sample from Funky Drummer have been used so many times. If you're just looking at just the drum sample, you could just have hundreds and hundreds of songs that have sampled. Yeah those drum samples hundreds of tracks and i would say before as a preface to to my list too or my guideline i, I use direct samples and not interpolations of music 
which we'll get into the difference in that later on. But that was one thing. So you've already heard this one, but I'm going to play it for the audience at large. This is the sample that kicked off this whole topic in my mind. And I brought it up to Ian earlier, which was, uh, it's from Maggot Brains. A few things I discovered in doing a deep dive in their discography, first of all, was that George Clinton was fronting both these bands at the same time. For some reason, I had felt like he was in one band and he joined the other band. I didn't realize that they were literally in parallel, like dropping albums in the same year. And one was like more funky, one was more kind of psychedelic and out there. But and the other thing, I always felt like they were fringe. They had been sampled a lot. They were well-respected. Obviously, Prince loved them. A huge influence on all the hip-hop artists of the 80s So I and beyond, obviously. But I, I, I always thought they were very like influential, but not really successful. And then I just went into their discography, just like through their Wikipedia. And they have multiple platinum albums. They have platinum albums overseas. They have number one singles. They weren't as big as Prince, but they were pretty mainstream. They were all over the R&B charts, for example, like top tens all the time. And both Parliament and Funkadelic. So in both incarnations, he was actually able to score hits on both sides with these two kind of variations of, of music that he had. The dividing line to me is Funkadelic is the more psychedelic rock-oriented project, more guitar-heavy, just more rock. Parliament and Funkadelic and George Clinton in particular are super interesting. So they started in New Jersey and... George was a hairdresser. He owned a barbershop and they had people in there and formed a singing group in the shop. In the 50s, this is the 50s when he starts. Yeah, it's like the late 50s, 57 or something like that, I want to say. And then a few years go by and Motown really starts coming into their own and they decide to relocate to Detroit and try to get a deal with which they got turned down on, but they were part of the Detroit music scene in a heavy way. And like, you'd have Funkadelic playing shows with the Stooges and MC5. And that was, like, they're kind of, they're really rocking at that point. And, right. and Parliament is the more R&B funk aspect of those two groups. And there's so many interwoven members between the two, but really Bernie Worrell stands out as one of the biggest connective tissues between Parliament and Funkadelic, aside from George Clinton, obviously. And he's a keyboard player that just, he's revolutionary. He's one of the, my favorite keyboard players, synth players. And he was essentially the music director in a lot of ways for both those groups. And another interesting thing is how George was operating really kind of Riza owes him a debt of gratitude, I would say, because he really operated and maneuvered around the labels George Clinton did. And I feel like Riza took that blueprint and applied it to Wu-Tang Clan later on, obviously. But having each of the different Wu-Tang Clan members signing solo deals with different record labels. So it wasn't they weren't getting consolidated under one corporate structure. And that allowed them a little more leverage and latitude, or at least that was the thinking. And that was what was behind, I believe, a lot of the moves George made too, to try and get around some of the worst aspects of the music business. It's really interesting, by the way. I haven't even completed my research into them, <clears throat> and I haven't done a really thorough deep dive. I knew most of them. I wouldn't even say their most popular songs back in the day, but their most heavily sampled songs are the ones I probably know the best. I think this exercise we had was the first time I'd listened to Maggot Brain all the way through since probably 
over 10 years when it was on some all-time great album list somewhere. And I checked it out. This exercise began, by the way, because as I'm listening to Maggot Brain, there is a track on that album called Can You Get To That? Which actually was a single. I think it was a second single off the album. And it was a minor R&B hit, not a huge R&B hit. But it's actually, and I'll play a little bit of it. It's actually pretty pop compared to that record, by the way, which is, is sometimes pretty, yeah. I, I, I liked it. It's very experimental, but it's pretty weird. It did not do well, by the way. They were not mainstream at the time at all. Over, over time, it's become a, a classic, but at the time it was not very successful. And, but th this single, which, like I said, did chart on R&B charts, could have actually been an even bigger hit. I think it was pretty mainstream, actually. All right, so I'm going to play a little bit of it. And then I was, you know, anyway, the story of that is I, I'm listening to it. And I'm like, I've definitely heard this sample before. And I tried some of these databases who uh, sampled, actually did have this sample, but I hadn't found that, that website yet at that time. But I tracked it down on my own because I just kept playing this loop in my head and I figured out what it was on my own. So I'll play the original Parliament song, sorry, Funkadelic song. I'm getting confused myself. I'm going to play the original Funkadelic song and then the, the more contemporary version. And, and, and by the way, that's Sleigh Bells with uh, Real, which came out probably over 10 years ago now, probably 15 years ago at this point. And, uh, and that's a band, by the way, that first record's actually pretty interesting, but then they got, they were all over the place. They, they had some, they got to a point where they were doing some really obnoxious production for some reason. And uh, so they never really like hit the peak of that first record, but they still had a few interesting songs after that first. Yeah, well, that's pretty cool. And that's uh, definitely an old, more older school sampling technique. Yeah, and that's what I was going to say. What I like about this one, by the way, compared to some of the others that I'll play, and I know I'll see what yours are like too, but what I liked about this one is that it is something that is, without stealing the original song, it is taking that foundational groove from the first song and then repurposing it, but I think in a, in a nice way. It's like a, in a an honorable way rather than sometimes. It's not like this is a Vanilla Ice uh, ripping off uh, under pressure, so uh, where you just steal the whole concept and just talk over it. But so there is good and bad appropriation, but I think they do enough with it and honor it because it is just like a really laid back groove and they just ride that out for the whole song. Yeah, it's a cool chord progression with the pretty sweet bass line. And I actually think, I think Brittany Howard recently covered that song too. Oh, really? Huh. Not the Sleigh Bells one, but the original. One. That, that is cool. And that is one of the more laid back tracks on Maggot Brain. <laughs> exactly. Uh, that, yes, exactly. That record really is more 
if you like sweet leaf by black sabbath yeah. i think you'd be really into maggot brain they're very analogous which you don't automatically think funkadelic black sabbath in the same breath but yeah some people just put out one good record and it could be a great record but they don't really have a big body of work and other people burn out and they put out good music and bad music and, and they just have a a traditional trajectory, but some artists like Parliament and Funkadelic uh, and George Clinton in general have that kind of career where I feel like they have like different phases, waves in their career where, like you said, they start off as a barbershop quartet or something, and then they ride the wave of like psychedelic and R&B and they have these dualities and then invent funk. James Brown probably invented funk for real, but they take it to a whole other level. I mean, that like the funk that we think of today is the funk that they created in that mid seventies. Oh yeah. And fun fact there, a little bit of connection, Booty Collins and his brother Catfish, who I believe is a drummer or maybe plays guitar. But anyway, they were with James Brown. Yeah. Toured with him briefly. I think they were there less than a year and James threw them, fired them because they're a little, they're a little too far out for him at the time. They went on directly from there to the parliament funkadelic family and were hugely again i would amend my previous statement so it's like george clinton bernie worrell and bootsy collins are the most consistent bridges between the parliament and funkadelic aspects of that whole music project and overall you're talking about probably like 70 musicians that have played with them <laughs> here so it's pretty amazing i'll get to mine here. This one was interesting in the context of the 1971 documentary because the sampling artist release was active in 1971 in the 70s. So they were formed in 1968 okay. and in New York in in Harlem specifically. And this is the uh, the last poets. Oh yeah. Who if you recall from the, the 1971 documentary, they did a precursor song to The Revolution Will Not Be Televised. Right. One of the founding members of The Last Poets was actually, unfortunately, in jail during 1971 when The Revolution Will Not Be Televised came out. But in 1993, they themselves sampled Alice Coltrane, who had uh, a awesome record with Pharaoh Sanders that year. Journey in Sacadananian. Oh, this is bad podcasting. (laughs) I just want to, I can't see the whole name. Nanda? Sacadananda? Yeah. Journey in Sacadananda, which I guess technically came out in 1970, but I included it here because it was listener in 1971. Maybe I'm seeing the release date as 71, so I think you okay. made it. <laughs> All right. Recorded November 1970, actually. So, so. Okay. Jeez. Sorry about that. Based on Wikipedia, that is. So yeah, take, yeah. Take everything with a grain of salt. Everything with a grain of salt. The Last Prophets, also an active and influential artist in their own right, specifically with the civil rights movement in 1971, late 60s. In 1993, made a record called Transcending Toxic Times that samples Alice Coltrane's uh, song Stop Over Bombay. I'll play the last poet's song and the title of the song is Black Rage from Transcending Toxic Times. (laughs) 
Charles Coltrane, who was married to John Coltrane and was a you know classically trained musician in her own. And this journey in Sachidananda, I think that was it, is I believe her fifth album. And here is Stop Over Bombay, which is the original of that previous song sampled. There's a John Coltrane sound to that, too. I actually don't know her very well. I should actually listen to more of her stuff that uh, to get that. It'd be interesting to hear like music they were putting out simultaneously because I'm sure there was a feedback loop between the two of them. They were both putting out music overlapping for about, I think, four, four or five years before John's passing. And they definitely informed each other from what I can gather. Um, yeah. I, mean, I can't imagine you have uh, another uh, jazz musician in the home. There's not like a lot of, uh, you're not bouncing ideas off each other or just improvising together. Although some people... I shouldn't speak that way. Some artists can be very competitive about that. But like I said, there's a, there's some shared DNA there in the sound of that song, at least. Mm. So uh, I'm curious. I, I wouldn't be surprised if they were working together on, or at least working uh, these ideas off of each other. All right. So for my next one, I'm trying to think of something to bounce off of that. So I'm going to go with, and I might play a few songs here because this sample is was an interesting one. Believe it or not, I have heard this sample so many times and I never tracked down the original track. And then just by some coincidence, lightning strikes, it is this year, 1971. Again, first of all, 1971, this artist, which is Isaac Hayes, the artist I'm going to be talking about, of course, had the Shaft soundtrack this year, which was a, you know, a huge moment in music. The movie was the first quote-unquote black superhero was what they called it at the time. So like the movie was revolutionary. When I first saw the film when I was very young, I thought it was pretty much cheesy exploitation. Now watching it with that kind of like that context, I'm like, no, this is actually pretty sophisticated. And some of the things they're, they're trying to deal with and the, uh, they're putting in these black em empowerment uh, themes into the story in subversive ways. But uh, it's not that bad. And the music, of course, is great. It's iconic. But I'm not talking about the Shaft soundtrack, actually. I'm talking about that same year, Isaac Hayes had his a solo, a solo album earlier that year uh, called Black Moses. And the song is Ike's Rap 2. Yeah, yeah. And it's funny that they call this a rap, by the way, because I didn't know that this terminology was around. It's not a rap song when you'll hear it. I guess rapping was just like talking, right? That's yeah. That's where rap comes from. Let's so I rap. guess because he's talking a lot in this song. He talks a lot in this song. But anyway, so I will start with the original track. And I've abused you. I took advantage of you. And I used you selfishly. I apologize now. You see, because after suffering so much. So once again, I'd heard that violin sample so many times, did not realize it was from this song, but it gets me a little excuse here to talk about the whole Manchester drum and bass scene, because in 1990, what is it, 1994, a Portishead has a huge breakout album, of course, and they sample this very song. I'm so tired. I play 
Portishead, of course, out of all the bands from this time, Massive Attack also. Uh, Massive Attack actually did break out here, but Portishead probably broke out the most. But my favorite artist of this whole genre was a producer called Tricky, who still puts out music mm. and actually put out a really good record just a couple of years ago. But his first album, Max and K, is incredible. It is one of my favorite albums of that whole decade, probably. And he has my favorite sample here, and I'm going to play a little bit of it again. I stand firm for a soil Liquor, I come for Mostly juicy, so juicy Dress me up in stitzy Hands round the corner where I shelter Is a schism The living out of style If you believe or deceit Common sense says shit Let me take you down the corridors of my life And when you want to You want to your preference so that's a great song and that's a great album, by the way. But that's not my last sample. I'm going to throw one more in there for the pop fans out there. Oh, yeah. Anybody who knows Alessia Cara, I don't even know how to pronounce her name, but she had a number one hit song sampling this very record. And this is the greatest mashup of all times for her because she samples not only the violin line, which has been sampled many times before, Massive Attack also samples it. It's like all that whole, all those artists were bouncing ideas off of each other. So not only does she sample the violin sample that we've been hearing and the piano part of it too. But he, she samples also Alex Hayes' rap part over it as well. He takes some of his vocal samples. And on top of that, she also takes the guitar, the distorted guitar, which comes in later in the Portishead song. And mm -hmm. she samples some of the Portishead song too. So she samples everybody. And I'll play a little bit of that. So there you go. 45 years between uh, that album coming out and then it becoming a number one hit song with um, that British artist. I think she's British. There you go. It just took 45 years to, to, to become a number one hit song. Yeah. And it's interesting, too, because you how different different music can hit and stick in different regions. Right. So you have this song and that Isaac Hayes album was pretty big. He was a yeah. big as far as R&B, especially at that time and kind of at the peak of his powers with especially the shaft really brought him into wider public consciousness i think but it seemed to have lived like his music seemed to have lived a bit longer in the uk yeah and um, i find that interesting there's a whole subgenre now which is like a retroactive thing of music called nor con considered northern soul quote unquote which doesn't mean it's all soul artists above the Mason-Dixon line in America. <laughs> it just means that these certain artists and records have become like mainstays and like really popular in northern, northern UK to begin with. So places like Manchester and up. And that was like their soul canon. And a lot of that stuff filters down through music later on for UK groups. And it's interesting because it, it takes, they put more like shine a little bit on a different segment of American music's 
then America did it so, does itself. Absolutely. Yeah. I think it's one of the most fascinating parts of what the British invasion, let's say, but just how it just, I find it very interesting when you look at that, those histories, those parallel musical histories and how the influences on those artists, right? Whether you're coming out of the early sixties in the U S you're hearing like garage rock and things like that. Surf rock is very influential in that kind of stripped down rock and roll that you're hearing in the U S but simultaneously you have really these blues artists that are influencing the Rolling Stones, the Beatles, the Kinks, et cetera. And then, but you, and then, and then there's a feedback loop there, right? Where these things bounce back and forth, like punk once again in the UK versus us punk is very interesting. Us punk is throwing back to that 1950s garage rock and girl groups and things like that, like the Phil Spector sound. And then in the UK, you have a much more of a throwback to simultaneously to the, that retro sound of which the late fifties, which was where the UK started to become these kind of like uh, soul archivists. So they're throwing back to that sound and simultaneously they have this whole ska scene, the reggae scene emerging. So they have that influence too. So you have these, it's very interesting that they're, they have a parallel cultural thing happening but their musical influences are they're, they're they share dna but they're they're like echoes of each different uh yeah they're pulling from different times it's like a different half-life cosmically it's like an alternate history by the way too because it's just like yeah. seeing like different influences creating different threads and sometimes they get very close and sometimes they diverge it's like it's, it's, it's interesting no it's funny yeah even before yeah soul music when it was like you had these British kids in the early 60s covering Sun House and people in the United States that were their age didn't know who the hell Sun House was. Exactly. Uh, and, but that was always the case, by the way. There are some of those really yeah. late 50s, early 60s songs that became, like you said, became iconic, became, became part of the canon in the UK that, uh, once again, this is just some history of review I've been doing during these podcasts, just uh, tracking down some of these artist histories. And you see these R&B artists that, for example, like in the US, they had this one top 20 hit and they never had any more hits. And then like in the UK, it's like they had multiple top five hits. And then 10 years later, like in the mid seventies, they suddenly have a uh, resurgence and they have multiple more top 10 hits in the UK. And they like never, ever had another hit song in the US ever again. But like you said, like some kids started like, some of these punk rockers started to uh, on some at these clubs started playing some of this old music and not only did their old records start playing they started playing at the clubs and they started recording new songs and they had a whole second career right yeah yeah it's pretty cool and there's an interesting along the same lines there's an interesting thing with the relationship with like jazz and france exactly in america which is nuts and then you have someone like like a serge gainsbourg yeah who really who had an album in 1971 bar- by the way yeah and he bar- <laughs> yeah and he borrows a lot of like contemporary like to his time american black american music style so there's a, he has like a he's a lot of r&b stuff from serge gamebor just the instrumentation his lyrics are insane if you read the translations <laughs> yeah exactly kind of don't recommend it i was gonna say about tricky too he was awesome in the fifth element oh he Exactly. Yeah. Perfect. Perfect for it. He's a very uh, odd guy. He was also in that tool video, by the way, once again, playing a very alien type of character, but uh, he's a little, he's a quirky looking fellow. And, uh, and the vocals, by the way, that's a whole controversial thing. I think he eventually, I don't think they had a child together. I don't know if they were married, but the vocalist on Max and Kay 
is a teenager that he met like in the streets. She's 16 years old. And apparently they started a relationship then. And he was like 30. She was like 16. Probably not the best situation to be in. But I did. They had a child together. And I think they worked together for a while. So I did turn into a relationship. But still, you know, not the not the best, uh, not the most uh, okay thing to have. But still, he has had a long career and he's still putting out some good music, actually. His, he had a couple of week albums uh, and I kind of just dropped off listening to him. But he actually had a record that got rave reviews like two or three years ago. And I tracked it down and listened to it. It was good. It was kind of like his, uh, his early stuff. And, uh, and he's also produced a lot of music for other artists and it's very good as well. If you track down at one point, he, he was doing remixes for everybody. So it's uh, some good, some good remixes. Nice. All right. That's a cool trip hop down memory lane. <laughs> there you go. This is an interesting one. The sampler in this one is one of my favorite groups of all time growing up. I'd say they've dropped in the rankings for their lyrics a little bit. They're also just another example of someone that was gone way too soon, and that's Bradley Knoll and Sublime. Their first regional radio hit, or at least the first time I heard them, was a single from their first album, 40 Ounces to Freedom, titled Date Rape, um, yes. which it's definitely not, if you listen to it, it's definitely not advocating right. for that. But then the conclusion of the song is also very kind of reprehensible. Right. It's just, it's a very touchy thing to make any type of artistic statement about that. The probability of failure is super high, <laughs> put it that way. 40 Ounces to Freedom was their first album and their first single that I'd ever heard on the radio was the unfortunately titled Date Rape or it's a questionable song, but it was playing on WBRU, which used to be the Brown University rock radio station. And I grew up within range of it and they'd play these cool kind of more underground things and heard that sublime song. At that point, I was nine years old, so the whole concept really escaped me, but the energy of the song was awesome, and I already liked ska music, because I've been introduced to reggae, and I got into them, and throughout 40 Ounces to Freedom, the next album, Robin the Hood, and then when they finally broke nationally, really, was the self-titled record sublime released in 96 and there's sampling and covers and interpolations of other songs throughout all their records that to me was just really cool because it had always seemed the preeminent domain of hip-hop exclusively so then to have uh, a live three-piece group guitar bass drums but also have a guy dropping samples into it and having mixes like that and not integrating like a dj really so much into the group for their live stuff all the time but like on the records that was cool and this song was an outtake or a finished song that i think was just left on the cutting room floor and there's a remix that finally came out which is on a compilation secondhand smoke and the song is get out and it's about having uh, landlords it's 805 this is Phyllis in the office the cat is out on the patio if it jumps one more time your butts are in the street I am sick and tired of your activities of your cat 
There's a, there's a few samples there, right? First is a sample apparently of a real voicemail. Yeah, right. Gotten from his landlord. And then there's a couple samples uh, that switched up horn, like scratched horn line a little bit. But the main kind of uh, cool little guitar sample yeah. is originally from Betty Wright, who is a soul singer and has a great number of really solid albums through the late 60s uh, mid 70s and the original song is clean up woman song but i definitely know that guitar sample as soon as i heard it so i'm curious to know i, I probably know it from something else but that that is very cool and i don't that, that's definitely an artist i don't know much about at all so that's someone i need to uh do a little uh a deeper dive on oh uh, betty right yeah exactly real love by mary j blige so maybe that's where i heard it that was the other that was the other one which surprised me because i only knew i only recognized it from for the sublime song Oh my goodness, there's so many good ones to play here. I'm trying oh, to piggyback on yours. The other thing that I did to limit the chaos, which has proven somewhat successful, I avoided the sampler songs that also have eight other samples in them. Right. Total, like you were saying before, like someone like Girl Talk. But yep. if you take a look at the Prodigy, Fat Boy Slim, some of their songs, or we go back to Paul's Boutique and Three Miles High and Rising my day lost soul you could have a dozen samples in one track or kanye west is an example of there were some kanye west songs that i was thinking about using here that are similar in the fact that sometimes these samples are so basic that they actually work well for this type of exercise but sometimes like you were saying he'll take a little bit of a like a horn from here some guitar from there a drum line from there vocals from here and it's it's almost like the bomb squad again, where you're layering eight or nine things on top of each other. And a bomb squad is another perfect example of the, uh, that we were talking about before we started recording that uh, there's another one where it's, I am guarantee you that there's lots of 1971 <laughs> horns and things in those public enemy recordings. So, yeah. Uh, I was looking, when I was looking through, I think fight the power has eight songs sampled just from 1971 i'm sure there's more wow. than the eight it didn't srx didn't just say oh, i'm gonna take 1980 1971 right and sample that but there are eight there are like eight songs from that year yeah it's it's nuts it's incredible and some of the stuff and honestly like when you see someone like that or you look at someone like dj shadow or even girl talk by example but in a much more pop 
way. I think they are creating their own art in a way. It's a sonic collage. Exactly. It's a col- exactly. And it's like you're, at that point, you're almost like you have to envision this sound scape in your mind. It's like you're a composer or something, uh, like a classical composer, but you're using found music, which adds another complexity to, to that as well. Yeah. And I don't, I don't know if there's like a, an official term, but there, to me, there is that stylistic difference. What we're just kind of saying there, people like the Bomb Squad, Girl Talk, where there's a real sense of Kanye, a real sense of arrangement of different elements, making them congruent right. and creating something, a, a totally different animal. And then I think there are some things with sampling technology and how to record it that made it easier to do. It's probably easier to do now more than ever, obviously, but more prohibited. Yeah. When I think about some of these DJs, the samples were pretty complex, by the way, back then when they were back in the you know 70s, where they are spinning in real time and they have a MIDI where they could actually play a, a loop. So they can play a disc, capture a loop, flip the record. And it's and they're, it's nuts. Like you're seeing them just throw discs around. It's like just the gymnastics of that is impressive. Don't get me wrong. You can imagine like someone like Girl Talk or Kanye is probably a perfect example of this, where they're sitting down in the basement and they have a, a, a cool guitar line they like or a cool vocal line. And then they, he speeds it up a little bit and then he, puts, he makes it match the drum beat. And then you can just do 40 versions of the recipe until you get something that matches. As opposed to, imagine you have a turntable where you really have very limited options. Like how quick can I flip this record physically to yeah. get another sample in? Yeah, and you maybe have like a 16 channel yeah, the MPC, like that drum pad where you could program up to eight seconds or something, 12 seconds, depending on your specs, you know what I mean? And that, in then going before even, that's like the first wave of digital recording, really. The people that produce like that splicing tape. Yeah. And it's crazy because in 1971, that's where people were. Yeah, you think about like Sgt. Pepper and you hear about all those stories about how they had to that the tempo in a song changes halfway through because you had you had a very limited number of tracks that you could record on and then you'd have to keep manipulating them and then you're like losing resolution as you layer more sounds on top of it and like you said in 71 you're just starting and this is another trend that happens in 71 you see it in that documentary where they're talking to uh, to pete townsend right with the who where they're just starting to get into like electronic composition right? and you of course, the emergence of Yes and Pink Floyd obviously goes much more in that direction. But also even The Who, he composed that whole entire album on a keyboard and then brought it to the band and they turned it into a rock and roll album. It's just starting to happen. And like you said, you think about how sophisticated some of this stuff sounds now and it's all analog and it's pretty amazing what they, what they were able to accomplish. Yeah, yeah, it's nuts. But it's right. interesting. Yeah, people, even with the technological changes, it's all towards the same end result, really. And people will just, you know, adapt their methodology to the, the technology. But it's interesting that drive remains. That's why it's so, music itself, I think, is so universal to people. Yeah. yeah. So I could go in so many different directions here, but I'm going to keep it in the rap and R&B sample range for one more. What I'm going to do is I'm going to play, uh, this is Grant Green. Don't know much about this artist, but this is actually a very nice album. I actually listened to sample some of the album after I found this sample. So two different samples in this record. And I'll just say that the record is it's a Kendrick Lamar of 
Good Kid Mad City, his first album. And, uh, or his first, I guess his first actual album. I guess he had a mixtape before that. And I don't know if this is Dr. Dre producing him. It may be. Dr. Dre, by the way, you look at his most popular samples, they're all from 1971. I think he just came of age. Or maybe his mom just had a lot of albums from 71. And that's what he was listening to. But he's got a lot of samples from that. Wow. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Big one with that. And I don't honestly don't know if this is Dr. Dre producing him here on this song. But two records from 71 that are being sampled. One is Grant Green, and I'll play you the originals first. Here it is. And the other sample is from Bill Withers. Bill Withers had a big album this year, but actually this song was off his next album. The album didn't come out until 72, but uh, the single came out in 71. And it's Use Me, which is a big hit for him. And this is very, this is another one of these uh, drum samples that have been used many times before. Mm. And here's how Kendrick, or maybe Dr. Dre producing him, mixed uh, those two together. That's a little recipe there. Yeah, that's great. And from the the great marriage of those two samples is in this. So that first song that you played is really light percussion. Right. There's enough there you can keep time, and but it's like this nice kind of like melodic, uh, more ethereal top line of the frequency spectrum. You have free reign with that as a producer because you're not fighting right. against something that has like a established real like strong backbeat. So when you find a cool drum break that's isolated and on that Use Me song and the whole Still Bill record, his drummer there is James Gadson, who is a superb drummer, like one of the funkiest dudes ever. So if you want to just take a look at like his own discography as like a session player, you'll come across a boatload of awesome songs with cool beats. And a lot of them will have these little breaks and fills that people just feel compelled to sample because you can't program something like that. That's really cool. I like that. And not produced by Dr. Dre, by the way, produced by a producer called Gabriel Stevenson. Don't know anything about this guy, but I like that song. And he actually produced a lot of songs here. He's also worked with Anderson Pack. Once again, I'm just reading Wikipedia. This is not something I know. Oh. He's worked with Anderson Pack and with a bunch of others. And Anderson Pack also on Dre's label. So I guess it's one of his in-house uh, talent. Yeah, I, I think Good Kid Mad City came a little bit before like Dre probably got involved with Kendrick. Isn't he on his label? I think he's on his label. It, I could be wrong yeah, about that. Now. He definitely is now, right? Now, yeah. And Anderson Pack is from LA as well. And he's yeah. really talented. I yeah. like his music. 
I guess he has a new thing with new group with Bruno Mars. Bruno Mars. So to pivot off off your last one, which includes yeah. the Bill Withers sample from Use Me, that was chronologically out of bounds, but we'll let that we'll let that go. <laughs> but the other song was in bounds, right? So. Oh, exactly. <laughs> that was that was the jumping off point, the first. <laughs> and this is Grandma's Hands by Bill. Yes. This is the awesome No Diggity. More Dr. Dre DNA here, by the way. Dr. Literally. <laughs> and uh, Queen Penn featured also on. Uh, hey! Yeah. You know what? I like the players. No Diggity, no doubt. Play on, play at. Play on, play at. Black Street was a group fronted by Teddy Riley. He was also in a group called Guy yep. earlier and was the architect of another subgenre, New Jack Swing. Yep. And he was the bridge between the Minneapolis Prince sound and jam and lewis were a little bit more towards hip-hop but like teddy was more east coast hip-hop meets that kind of minneapolis funk in my opinion and uh, him hooking up with dr dre for that song it's great and again that's a real kind of such a simple sample yep and it's just woven into the track that it doesn't like immediately jump out unless you just listen to Bill Withers. Right. <laughs> and also, I believe Little Penny, the puppet, was in that video or on MTV. That's right. Always by Chris Rock. <laughs> that's right. So it, that's a cultural touchstone. No, yeah. Diggity. Anybody who remembers the Little Penny puppets? No, no I, no, or diggity. no diggity itself. It's a nexus of, of all good things. That's right. That's right. <laughs> I think No Diggity, by the way, that I thought of this right away when I first started this concept. And like you said, it's actually such a relatively small sample, but it's utterly iconic. Like as soon as you hear the Bill Weathers song, you immediately recognize it. And yeah, um, I think the other two, I always believed just the other two guys in the group are just doing that in the background. Right. One of them does the you know, trades off a of verse. I just figured the other guys are doing that. It's awesome. I'm going to go in a pretty different direction here. Although I'm not going to land in that very different place. Okay, so this is an album from 1971. So the song is Promise Her Anything But Give Her Arpeggio. Believe it or not, that's quite a preposterous title, by the way. And it's the album uh, is uh, How Hard It Is by Big Brother and the Holding Company. This is after... Janice had left, right? That's right. Janice had left. She has her solo record this year, big record for her, 1971, big year for her. And, uh, and she sings backup. She does backup on some of this record. But a lot of this record is the band members, are they, they do their own vocals. But a lot of it is instrumental, actually. This record was their last record, I believe. And I think it's their last record. I could be wrong about that. But it's near the end of their run, too. But here is the sample. And part of the reason I'm going to play the sample is, first of all, it's taking things in a different direction. But the artist who does the sample is uh, Most Deaf, who I am a big fan of. I really liked him as an actor and as a rapper, that first record especially. And uh, he's, I, and I could be speaking out of turn here because he may have very well put out a record re relatively recently and I just wasn't aware of it, but he fell off 
for me as far as me following his music. And also, uh, he's not on, in movies anymore. He's just disappeared from the scene. And he was everywhere at one point in movies on the radio. I will play you the Big Brother song first. Now, two things when I play the most deaf song. First of all, I they it's pretty straight the way he just uses it as the backbone to the song, but mm -hmm. they add an effect. It's probably a keyboard, but they add this kind of echoey effect that accentuates the song rather than changing it. And I love the sound of it. And I love his rap on here too. I just love how he flows on this specific record. I like his in general, but really this record, maybe just because I heard it so many times. <laughs> what? Relax. Pump the brakes. So we'll just, I don't know if you know how familiar you are with that song, but what'd you think of it? Oh yeah, I love Most Def. He and I share a birthday. Most Def. You do? Wow, I didn't know that. I am, but we're both December 11th. Oh wow. I'm, I'm connected to him in some way. You're spiritually connected, if you believe in astrology. You know, the Cosby mysteries. God damn it. You can't talk about Cosby. He's back out of jail now. So. Too much. But yeah, I don't know. He's an example of a guy that strikes me almost like Nilsson. Like super talented but did not stick with convention in any that he made. I think he's doing a podcast now, actually, with Dave Chappelle, I think. Oh, is he part of that? I have not listened to that podcast yet, but I, I def it's definitely on my to-do list, so I'll have to check that out. If he's on there, I would definitely pay attention. He actually did have an album in 2019, but he hadn't had an album since 2009. Yeah, and aside from that 2019 album, he also did, I think, a lot, maybe it was based on the same project but he had this other thing that was i think it was in like the museum of modern art down in new york city called negus yeah that's the uh, the album name too right the album. did you have a a, a follow-up so i'm actually going to go to another coltrane and this is a john coltrane sample that i wouldn't have put two and two together really here i'm not the biggest jazz guy overall me neither me neither I'm not up and down Coltrane's biography or discography, I should say. But that said, I do know and love the song of the sampler, which is Chief Rocka by Lords of the Underground. Mm -hmm. 
the shoes. It's gotta be the shoes. <laughs> Those lyrics are very funny. Yeah, they're awesome. Early '90s, yeah. uh, New York hip hop is my bread and butter, and they sampled a song from 1971 John Coltrane album called "Sunship," and uh, the song is called "Amen." <laughs> So that's a great example of how you can manipulate a sample. I right. think a real short snippet of it. So they slowed it down and like down tempoed it. Started at like the halfway point between the first, like halfway into the first part of the phrase and then looped it. So it's shifting the whole continuum of the, the groove in a unique way. It's interesting. My pre preference with hip hop too is that early 90s, although. Kendrick and stuff. There's still some really great hip hop now. I'm older now, so I don't get to have my ear to the ground as much. As we all age, we lean into the, the things we heard when we were younger. But with the sample, it's interesting that why that works. Because in my mind, I'm like, why don't you just record it yourself? Or why would you even think of splitting up that horn and just refactoring it a little bit? But the mystery of it all is that it works. There's something about it that, I don't know, it gives it some kind of feel. It's it's obviously not analog. You're obviously manipulating it severely, but it still adds some character to it. And I don't know, that's a mystery to me. If you, you know, tried to just record it or program it into a computer uh, from scratch, just that chord progression, there's, a, there's an extra, not authenticity is the wrong word, but it creates an additional layer. There's maybe just some history you're adding to it. You're, you know, borrowing <laughs> from the other song potentially, but it's still, there's something effective about it. I think nostalgia is very powerful. Yeah. And then we're so good at like pattern recognition. You group near misses into the same basket. Right. Overall. So like the beauty of sample, it's you find this cool passage of music and the, the one and the three should be interchangeable if it's a four or four beat. All right. That's too much music theory that i don't even really know but like, you can take any time the kick drum hits and any time the snare drum hits and move those around interchangeably relative relative to their positions and then any instrumentation beyond those percussive elements is gonna somehow align again because there was played on that kick or on that snare drum so when you can move stuff about just a little bit and it still tickles people's ear and they're like that's familiar kind of like whatever i think this may have been and that's interesting because that's the same type of drive that had you find that the track with the three other samples exactly i, I think you, t you hit it on the head there our ability we're, we're such creatures of always looking for patterns. That's why we like fall for conspiracy theories and stuff. We're always looking for patterns, even when there aren't any. So even a very small pattern, like you said, it tickles your mind. Some people can like instantaneously place it, but others it's just, oh, that reminds me of something. And that triggers a nostalgia. So all of a sudden you've borrowed that emotion in your song.
that's the end of that part of the conversation. Although we actually had a few more samples we played for each other and some quite some long digressions on just trends in, in the way music is being released nowadays. And we also bash a terrible, terrible David Bowie song. So a lot of those will probably be Frankenstein together into a future episode. There's some pretty fun content there, along with some more samples that we'll play. In the background, you're hearing Mambo Sun by T-Rex, also from 1971, reinterpreted and interpolated into the Black Keys' Everlasting Love. Once again, make sure you subscribe. We'll get those notifications when those episodes become available. And we continue to recap TV shows. The current one we'll be watching is The After Party on Apple+. Plus. Listen to previous episodes to find out where you can get or how you can get Apple Plus or watch these shows. And check out some of the other music episodes we've had here. Music from 1971, music from 1991, a review and discussion about the music in the Beatles' Get Back documentary recently from Disney+. Plus. The history of Prince, the history of Chris Cornell on the anniversary of his passing, and lots of music episodes, and lots of movie reviews. We just reviewed Scream recently, or I just reviewed Scream recently. And you can get all of that by searching in this feed or by subscribing to us to find out when new episodes become available. Give us a five-star review on Apple's or on Spotify, if you're listening to us on Spotify, and I'll talk to you soon.